This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper, is one of several governors who say pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord is a mistake. He adds that Colorado's commitment to clean air and clean energy will continue. In our regular conversation recorded Wednesday at the state capitol, I asked him what that means. Here's the goal. How can we get rid of more carbon emissions, in other words, use less coal in the generation of electricity, but at the same time reduce the monthly costs that people pay for their electricity? And that's the magic. If we, if we can figure out a way to do that and have cleaner air, and so less particulates, less sulfur dioxide, less ozone, less methane, all the pollutants, all the, all the carbon emissions, and at the same time find a way to, to use the cost efficiencies of wind or another renewable, then we want to be moving forward on it. And I think we can do that. I think there's a, a calculus that we can find that will allow us to, at the very least, hold the cost flat to consumers. Because that really drives the discussion. If we can say, hey, if we close a couple of coal plants, we're also going to have lower prices for our consumers. So Colorado was the first state in the country where voters passed a renewable energy mandate. That was back in 2004. It was later increased by the legislature to make utilities get 30% of their power from renewable sources by 2020. That date's approaching. And so I wonder, do you want Colorado to set another such goal for 2030 or beyond? In other words, do you want to codify what I hear you're saying Sure, I, but I don't want to codify something that, unless we know what we can do and what the costs will be. In other words, we, we've got to be able to demonstrate that there are no cost increases. If we were going to try and codify something, we would do it in consultation with Senate President Grantham, with Speaker uh, of the House Duran. You know, that would be a, a broader process. There's one candidate for governor on the Democratic side, for instance, who's pushing for the state reaching 50 percent. Uh, by a date, I think, uncertain at this point. Uh, Is that something you'd like to see, though? Oh, sure, if we could do it within the cost parameters I'm talking about. Keeping rates even. Yeah, I think that the goal here to proclaim goals is useful. And I don't diminish, I mean, everyone should have aspirational goals. We're trying to go a little further in detail and actually say, all right, we want to get to this level, and here's how it's going to happen, step by step. What are some other areas where the state has influence and authority? You could look at issues around how government operates its buildings. As a tenant? As, as, as tenants. The or state it, of Colorado. Yeah, exactly. And the state of Colorado also owning a lot of buildings and in charge of those. Are we at best practices in terms of the levels of insulation, how we buffer the air circulation? Are we green? Air conditioning becomes a huge issue. So are you ordering some sort of review in that regard? No, we've or? been reviewing already. At least a dozen governors, including a few Republicans, have banded together in what they're calling the Climate Alliance. They say they'll stick to the goals set in Paris to cut emissions by 26 to 28 percent from 2005 levels. Are you planning to join that alliance? Well, we'll see where we come down, but we're certainly looking uh, in detail at what those goals are. And we're trying to go make sure that we have a pathway by which we can get to them. And certainly my, my expectation is we will be able to, to get to those goals and to be able to join that alliance and, and perhaps even go beyond that. But we want to do it in consultation with our uh, General Assembly. We want to do it uh, with more specifics than maybe some of those other governors have provided. So it sounds like a condition for you joining that climate alliance is getting very specific on how the state would reach those Paris goals yeah, that's itself. An, that's a pretty ambitious goal that they've set out. 
uh, and is a, is a would be a big leap for most states and a big leap for Colorado. I'm not saying we couldn't do it, and I think we we will be able to do it. I just want to know how we're going to do it before I go off and say, "Hey, here's what we're doing." But it sounds like you're leaning strongly towards it. I think we can get there. Yeah, I, I mean, again, if we can have cleaner air at no additional cost to our ratepayers, at no additional cost to our citizens, it's government malpractice not to do that, in my opinion. Right? Ten years ago, twenty years ago. When you really went after cleaning your air up, you had to add stacks onto coal plants. You had to put in huge capital investments to try and get your air cleaner. I think now with the how inexpensive the combination of wind and natural gas is, right, so that you can put these two together and cycle on and off. When the wind blows, you're using wind. When the wind stops blowing, you cycle on natural gas. I believe we can get pretty close to there with no additional cost to our consumers. This comes at an interesting time for Colorado because the state's office to promote all kinds of energy development just lost about $3 million. That money would help pay for... It wasn't just $3 million. They lost their entire budget. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that was an interesting time. This is the Colorado Energy Office. And this money helped pay for community solar projects, energy efficiency grants, many other things. And lawmakers disagreed on how to focus the office in the future towards more renewables or for more oil and gas and even nuclear power. So how will that loss affect all the efforts you've talked about so far in terms of the state becoming more of an energy leader with uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Paris? First and foremost, Colorado needs an energy office. Every state west of Mississippi has an energy office. Almost every state in the country has an energy office. So we're, we're at a handicap relative to just operating efficiently without that office. So practically, what does that mean for so, someone in so the pra- state? So practically, we're going to prioritize places where the energy office has a greatest effect. One of the big criticisms was they didn't do enough to support the oil and gas industry or didn't do enough to support the coal industry. I think there's a solution there if we could get some more time and we're going to uh, petition the Joint Budget Committee, to just provide bare-bones funding so they can get them through a year and use that year to really figure out what does an energy office look like that both sides can agree on. It's not going to be perfect for either side, but let's get to that point where we can say, uh, here's what an energy office should do, and some of it is making sure that low-income households get better weatherization so that they don't spend have as high utility bills. These are people that an extra 20 bucks a month or even 10 bucks a month is a big deal. It changes some of the parameters of their quality of life. You know, and that's not really an oil and gas or a solar yeah, or... But, but one of the things they do also is, is help put in uh, alternative fuel uh, filling stations, right? We need to make sure there are enough stations so that more people can use alternative fuels like compressed natural gas for their pickup trucks, for their station wagon, that helps the oil and gas industry. I mean, all these things. So you're going to try to buy some time by making this request of the Joint Budget Committee. Yeah, so you, not, not during session, obviously, but here in the intercession. Yeah, they, there are procedures by which you can request that kind of funding just to kind of get you through and then get you know, both sides sitting down. I talked to Senator uh, Ray Scott, who is the chairman of the Energy Committee, the senator from Mesa County. And he's, he was very supportive of that and said he would talk to President Grantham. We'll see. I mean, that's the kind of thing. Let's, let's just get a little breathing room and then have a compromise that gets us, or have, find the compromise that gets us into a new energy office. 
Not unrelated to this discussion about where Colorado gets its energy is that April home explosion in northern Colorado after gas leaks from a nearby flow line. Two people died. A third was severely injured. Uh, When we talked about this in May, you said it was a freak accident. Uh, But we heard from a CU School of Public Health researcher that there were at least 116 fires and explosions at oil and gas operations in the state between 2006 and 2015. Their severity isn't clear, I'll say, but a home under construction in Trinidad blew up uh, in 2005. So before the framework of that study, a double wide in La Plata County exploded. Uh, Both of those linked to methane. Does that change how you're you're framing this? So it was a house under construction somewhere out in the area that somehow was close to a... Yes. Okay. So that's according to Inside Energy. Yeah. So I haven't seen any of this this study. We're certainly going to look at it. I was unaware of any fatalities that had happened, uh, you know, in a home explosion like this. Did somebody die in the? No, they did not. So, but but your point is that someone could have been living there. Fair enough. I, again, I only know what what people show me or what I'm able to read. Uh, our our decision to examine every flow line and to go above and beyond the perceived risk that I may have had that, that it was a once in a million freak, we went beyond that. And that basically what you're telling me is a good thing we did that. Don't put words in my mouth, but uh, you, you did order a review of flow lines that are within a thousand well, feet we, of buildings. We ordered, we ordered the, the most rigorous uh, inspection of flow lines in the history of the United States, is what I've been led to understand. And with a, a, an amazing sense of urgency that some of the oil and gas industry felt was unreasonable and unwarranted. But most everyone went through and did it. Yeah, it looks like uh, your regulators say most operators have complied. There are some smaller ones who have not. But... Um, what is the next step in that? And well, we what, to, what does it mean for those who haven't complied? Well, if people haven't complied, we have to find out whether it's just a function of resources. Or are they trying to hide something? Or are they just trying to thumb their nose at, at public safety, which I don't think is acceptable? You know, an, an industry like the oil and gas industry, and I will tell you that most of the operators, and I know many, many operators, take their responsibility to the community very seriously. And something like this happens, that's why... I mean, no one to my face came up to me and said, geez, can you give us three months instead of one month to, to get inspect these flow lines? Let's move to healthcare now. Some Coloradans could be in a position soon where they have no option on the state's health insurance exchange. Uh, insurers have until mid-month to say whether they'll offer plans on the exchange next year. And about 37,000 people on the West Slope rely on one carrier, Anthem, which has yet to say what it will do. Your insurance commissioner told us she's keeping her fingers crossed that insurers stay in the marketplace. What, if anything, could the state do if there are just bare spots? Well, at a certain point, I think the state then has to look at how do you cover those bare spots? How many people are involved? We know that we have parts of the state that have insufficient medical infrastructure. We're aware of that. And I'm sympathetic, right? That there, you can't ask a business to go into, you know, a geographical place and know that they're going to lose money. So if that is the case, then as a state, we have to assess why is it costing more in those places? Why are the doctors more expensive? Does the state have to subsidize some doctors? I do believe that we should hold ourselves to a level where every part of the state has some level of coverage. Does the state have some muscle when it comes to those prices that may be driving insurers out of the market? What are you, what are you saying the state well, might I, do I'm there? S- I'm saying those prices are generally a reflection of 
what the costs are being charged to the insurance companies. And, you know, for generations, we've always charged more money in rural areas. No one really ever knew about it before. We never were comparing the prices between rural and urban before. And then after Obamacare, pretty much everything got compared. I I think one backup possibility would be to try and find a, you know, a nonprofit provider that would come in with some incentives from the government you know, have Kaiser Permanente expand statewide so they become kind of a blanket coverage uh, service? Would that take some incentives? How much incentives? I don't know. But we do take very seriously that we're going to do everything we can to make sure that each part of the state has, you know, uh, an insurance carrier and, and some level of coverage. Are discussions underway with Kaiser for that? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think right now we're trying to make sure that Anthem, we're doing everything we can to uh, assure Anthem that we will help study the problem with them. And again, with what we, we have limited resources in terms of how, you know, helping an insurance company be successful. This is an idea that could get very different reactions across Colorado, but one listener in Denver pointed us to what Governor Andrew Cuomo is doing in New York. He says companies that withdraw from the exchange won't be able to participate in Medicaid, which would cut down on the number of their customers. Basically, he wants to push insurers to stay in the market that way. Would you consider some kind of preemptive action like that, more stick, I guess? Well, we have we certainly talked about that. You as, have? Yes, absolutely, as, as a way to try to provide motivation that, that more insurers cover, you know, all parts of the state, or at least a number of parts of the state. And why haven't you decided to go down that avenue? Well, because there are a lot of complications. There are pros and cons. Are you going to ask every insurer that does Medicaid to cover all parts of the state? The number of people on Medicaid that we have is a fraction compared to a state like New York. So for New York, that's a much more compelling argument. I want to ask you about your veto pen. You have until Friday to veto bills from this session that just ended. And one that's getting a lot of attention is about law enforcement's ability to seize and keep or sell cash, cars, or houses that they think might have been involved in a crime. Colorado has fairly strict laws aimed at keeping seizures in check, but there's concern that law enforcement agencies are using a loophole by working with the feds, which have looser rules around what's called civil asset forfeiture. So lawmakers passed a bill that tries to close that loophole. They wanted a lot more information about what assets are being seized and what local law enforcement does with the profits. This bill would put that information online for the public, but uh, many law enforcement agencies and the Colorado Municipal League say this would hurt their ability to fight crime in Colorado because they'd lose hundreds of thousands of dollars that uh, they make from these seizures. Have you decided what you'll do? No, you know, we've, all week we've been having both the people that are strong advocates for the bill, 1313, it's a aptly, unluckily named bill, 1313. <laughs> There are compelling arguments on both sides, and I can't – everyone I know has read some article, mostly in national press, about somebody who got pulled over and they had – you know, they're going to go buy a, let's say, a 1967 Chevy convertible as a vehicle that I have, and they had $16,000 in cash to go buy the car. And all of a sudden, they get pulled over, and there's some marijuana in the car or whatever. You know, these are these kind of stories you've read about or heard about. We haven't been able to find any of those stories in Colorado. So so far, I'm sure there's probably one or two, but we haven't found specific instances of someone's private property being taken from them because of these uh, allegedly looser federal laws. That being said, a huge part of our uh, American system is, is ruled by law, and people's trust and faith that that law is just and fair. 
So, so you remain undecided right. at this I, moment. I support the, absolutely the transparency, and I support trying to figure out how to make sure that this doesn't happen to people. But even if this law, as I read it, uh, even if, if I sign this law, it became law, all it means is the state would not participate in any way with the feds in, in these kinds of in investigations. And therefore, the, the state, which normally gets 80% of that kind of forfeiture, would not get anything. And so the feds would keep it all. I'm not sure that's the solution we want. There's a siren passing by us here at the Capitol. Any other bills that you are considering a veto with? Well, if I was going to tell you, that would really take away a lot of the surprise and drama. But no, Anything that's giving you pause? I, I don't think there are. I think that we're pretty much down to, I'm trying to remember if there might be one on the back part of my desk. No, I think this is the what we come down to this one that we're really trying to figure out. Governor, thank you. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper is speaking with me at the state capitol Wednesday afternoon. A few hours later, the Trump administration announced it would review a plan the governor worked on for several years to protect a bird whose habitat in Colorado and other parts of the West is highly sought-after land. The deal struck in 2015 avoided putting the greater sage-grouse on the endangered species list. Now, the president's interior secretary, Ryan Zinke, says he wants to make sure the conservation plan doesn't hinder energy production. Before Zinke's announcement, I asked Governor Hickenlooper what he's learned about working with this new administration and with Zinke on Western land issues, since they'll have many more opportunities on things like oil and gas leasing, grazing permits, and the management of national monuments. Here's that exchange. Almost all of those issues are fully in play right now. We had a long conversation with Secretary Zinke uh, two days ago. Uh, we covered several of these issues, monuments, energy, uh, the sage-grouse. And, you know, he is from the West, and he is, I think, open and receptive to hearing what we say. I don't think we've got quite the, the, the give and take. In other words, we're not, Western governors didn't see a draft of uh, Zinke's judgment before he made it, whereas with Obama, we would see drafts of almost everything. Uh, and there really was a collaborative effort going on. But I think we'll get there with Sinky. I think he's just new to the job, and he's trying to move quickly. You know, everything he's said to me, I really feel that he has a good Western perspective on how these lands should be man- managed. I don't think he's going to try and sell off lands or encourage any privatization of national lands or lowering the protections on lands. He's worried about some, in the past, some processes and procedures. So I'm at this point, they're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, and we'll see how this, you know, talk to me in six months. In fact, we'll talk sooner than that for our regular conversation with the governor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Workers at Colorado Mills Mall in Lakewood say they feel laid off by Mother Nature. A ferocious hailstorm broke through the mall's roof last month, flooding stores. It's expected to stay closed for repairs through November. CPR Sam Brash visited a job fair for the workers yesterday. 
When the storm hit, Isla Winger was two days into training at It's Sugar in Colorado Mills. It's one of those bulk candy shops where you fill a bag with gumdrops and gummy bears. And it sounded like there was just a bunch of people playing drums in the, in the mall when the hailstorm hit. Then water started to pour in through the ceiling. By the time I walked out of the mall, it was raining harder inside the mall than it was outside of the mall. The hail had cracked through the roof. Videos on YouTube show puddles pooling on the floor in just minutes. Afterwards, it was Winger's job to throw out a literal ton of candy. You had to stick my hand in it and scoop it out. And by the time I was done, I looked like I was just melting because of how much sugar was on my hands. Her job also dissolved. It's Sugar offered to transfer her to their location in downtown Denver. Winger is a single mom and says that's too far from her kid's daycare. So she came to the job fair for other options. This one threw a curveball at me, and uh, I've already run through all my savings. Winger is one of dozens of displaced workers at the job fair. It's in a hotel near the mall. They roam from table to table, talking to potential employers. Jill Howard is with the American Job Center, which helped organize the event. We received requests from over 100 employers, and we have 20-plus employers at the job fair today. Companies like Lyft, Home Depot, First Bank, all drawn by a rare pool of available workers. Colorado's unemployment rate in April was 2.3%. That's a record for the state and the lowest in the country. The um, unemployment rate in Colorado is pretty tough, and most of our stores are hiring. That's Susan Lyle. She manages recruitment for natural grocers and has had to get creative to find workers. A lot of job fairs, partnerships with cities. Nearby, Sam Totten is with Footers Catering. He says the lack of workers has forced his company to put expansion plans on hold. We could grow uh, faster, but it is, it's tough to find <laughs> great employees right now. Low unemployment can be a headache for companies. It's good news for Beth Griffin. She was an assistant manager at a kitchen supply shop in Colorado Mills, but she's not waiting for the mall to reopen and has some experience losing a job. Do you think this one is going to be like a little easier, a little harder? It might be easier because there's other positions available, readily available. When I did it before, it was they closed our store and it was automatically I'm out of work for the next couple of years. Economists say a long stretch of unemployment can have lasting consequences. It can be tough for people to get back to their old levels of income. The competitive job market also gives workers more choices. For Isla Winger, the candy shop employee, that may be a chance to get out of retail and use her degree in auto mechanics. When I had my son, I ended up not pursuing that because, you know, single mom, young child, it's really hard. At the fair, she goes to a table for Walmart and finds out the company plans to open a new store with an auto department. Even better, it's just blocks from her child's daycare. So I'm going to be going over to Walmart to interview and stuff like that for an auto tech position. Winger jokes that all hail broke loose at her last job. But it appears Colorado's booming economy may cushion the blow. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. The hailstorm that closed Colorado Mills pales in comparison to the economic storm that could hit other brick-and-mortar stores. In the age of Amazon, retailers like JCPenney and Sports Authority have shuttered locations or shut down entirely. Almost 100,000 store workers in the U.S. have been laid off since October. 
Stefan Weiler is an economics professor at Colorado State University. He joins us from Fort Collins. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. So the number of U.S. store closures so far this year is on pace with 2008 in the thick of the recession. But now consumer confidence is high. So with the economy growing, what's going on? Is it all just Amazon's fault? Well, I mean, actually, retail is st- as a whole is still growing, both in the United States and- as well as uh, in Colorado. Actually, retail sales have been actually doing remarkably well. I mean, around four to five percent. The, in- the the employment situation is what's what's softening considerably. Um, even though there's retail tr- sales of growing at sort of four to five percent in the nation, the the gain in employment is only about 1% year over year. And that, huh. you know, that is also disguising a lot of places that, like you said, Sports Authority, JCPenney, electronic stores have been particularly hard hit. And part of it, I think, is definitely online. Um, you know, online, you know, used to be, I mean, just it's, I mean, both you and I are old enough to remember. I mean, that, that was a, uh, it seems a relatively recent phenomenon in that respect. Um, but it has taken, its its growth has been pretty remarkable. Um, it's growing three times faster than retail as a whole. So in other words, when retail is growing about four to 5%, online sales have been growing year over year about 15%, which means that um, the share of, of sales due to online has doubled in the last seven years. It's close to 10% now when it was just a relatively, you know, relatively small percentage just a few years ago. So the, the pie as a whole is growing. Um, people are still buying, um, but the, the online component has been taking up a big share of that growth. So the actual amount of jobs that are out there um, is declining for brick and mortar. And let's just be clear, that's because there are fewer people needed to fulfill orders, I assume, and tend to shops when you're talking about online sales. That's how you can have growth in retail overall, but not a commensurate growth in the employment, I gather. Exactly. I mean, in some ways, online is really efficient in the in the respect that you need relatively few employees per order, right? Um, they, they maximize efficiency in that respect in terms of distribution. Retail is a slower process. It requires inventory control and those sorts of things that are much more difficult to manage on the retail level. So absolutely. I mean, people are still buying. I mean, the United States is unusual in the sense that, you know, nearly 70% of our economy is based on consumption. Um, so we are a consumer nation. Um, the other part, I think, that I'd been talking with Sam about previously. Um, this was my producer. So this was in advance of the show. Right. With Sam, who did the, the, the nice feature on, on the mills. Um, the other part is the millennials' um, consumption habits. I mean, they, you know, as I think we've heard now, um, people, younger people are preferring experiences over stuff. Um, and that still comes into consumption, but that's not retail anymore. People aren't right. buying things. You know, they go on zip lines or, or, or you, know, you know, ski slopes. Um, so those are services and that's, a, that's, that's not retail anymore. So stuff isn't getting sold as much for that for those younger folks. Interesting. So are these changes permanent? I mean, is this something that can somehow be reversed if brick and mortar stores, I don't know, do something that captures consumers' imaginations? Right. And I think that's where the innovations are lying. I mean, you know, Apple stores, for instance, are, have you know managed a pretty good trick there, right? I mean, they managed to keep um, traffic in their stores. And it's the complementarities actually between online and retail that have that have been interesting. Huh. You know, for example, um, you know, for, you know, Walmart online has actually been remarkably successful and it's actually a complement to their stores. And they can use their own distribution systems to make, you know, re- to make both online sales and retail sales more efficient. Um, so those companies that have been relatively, you know, relatively innovative in terms of how to deal with their online sales versus retail, in terms of targeting particular geographic areas for the retail stores, you know, up and coming neighborhoods, that sort of thing. Um, they're pretty flat. They've become much more nimble in that respect. 
So it had to be basically. Where is Colorado in comparison to other states when it comes to th- this these retail phenomena? Colorado is, I mean, because it's a growing state relative to the United States, I mean, you know, the last, uh, you know, I've been in Colorado now for 21 years and, you know, this has been an unprecedented, you know, stage of growth. I mean, 2001 recession, is, as we remember, was actually a pretty hard one for Colorado, as was 2008. But in general, we've been growing faster than the nation. And that, so in other words, our, and as, as we're growing, as people come in, people buy more stuff. So the pie actually has been growing. And that's why retail jobs are growing about twice as fast here in Colorado. Um, so, you know, in terms of Colorado, that's, that's kind of the difference. Um, well, and I suppose it's also about demographics. In other words, uh, we know that there are a lot of young people, for instance, moving right. to Colorado. And I wonder if there's some of this that breaks along age lines. I think that's partially right. I mean, we've always been attractive for young, well-educated folks. Um, and that's also why, you know, in terms of the job market, I mean, employ- I mean, for, for employers, it's tough. And it's great for people who are seeking jobs because there's more opportunities out there. And as, as uh, Sam's piece on the mills uh, nicely showed. Um, but um, the uh, – but uh, as it's growing, um, they're having – um, make some different choices, obviously. Um, all right. Well, let, we can move on to a, another topic there. And, and that is who absorbs the workers then that retail is shedding in some regards. So in, in Sam's story, the job fair extended to folks like natural grocers and Lyft. Right. And is there some sense... Home Depot. Home Depot, exactly. Is there some sense that that other sectors can absorb those workers, uh, perhaps with their level of experience or education. Right. I mean, this is like like the like the like Sam's feature noted. I mean, that this is an opportunity for people to move. So, for example, other service operations, things like banks or Lyft or Home Depot or other you know other types of retail. This is an opportunity for you know the the, the young woman there became an auto tech, for example, at Walmart. That was a great opportunity. So we have a relatively well educated workforce, even in retail, um, and it's a relatively young workforce. And so people are, can be flexible. People can be more flexible. The metro area, you know, which is the focus here, is is a really thick market, and there's constantly turnover there's constantly new positions you know our 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 growth of, of businesses of new businesses is really smart really strong um and that influx of young people also makes it still attractive for employers to stay here that influx hmm. of young people means that the job market as i mean i spent uh previous years in west virginia where there was really there's only out migration so those jobs, those labor markets can you know there's not going to be available workers here this place is constantly attracting you know fifty thousand new net migrants every year and most of those are young and most of them are well educated and they're ready to you know, they're ready to take on new jobs and new situations. Maybe they start in retail, but then in a, an economy like this, they can go out there and, you know, st- start moving around and finding what their, what their real passion is. I think the takeaway really for me is that retail, in many ways, is just one more sector that is being affected by automation. And that was really, uh, in many ways, the story of this past election. Um, before we go, uh, Stefan, th- this idea that Colorado has a 2.3% unemployment rate I'm sure there are any number of state leaders who would uh, celebrate that figure. But does ultra low unemployment, uh, I mean, certainly it presents some challenges for companies in terms of attracting workers and and, uh, having to be resourceful about what they offer. But are there other downsides to that low unemployment rate? 
it does make, for example, companies that want to expand. I think that that young entrepreneur that I was talking about trying to expand and having a hard time finding the exact right workers to do so. And that's hard. Um, and that's hard for companies, that, you know, particularly because Colorado has a lot of these gazelles of young, fast-growing companies. And in order to grow fast, you need exactly the kind of people that that um, are going to fit your needs. Um, thankfully, the metro area is pretty big. And again, we keep having people coming in and mm. looking for these things, being flexible and being young. The other part of that is, too, that um, you know, it's, it's not just the Denver metro area. I mean, part of what we're trying to do here at CSU is also to you know, keep in mind the, the rural parts of the state. Yeah. Some of the rural parts of the state are you know, have higher rates of unemployment and a lot of people that are just out of the labor force because the kind of opportunities are not as widespread there. Um, and in that sense, closing a retail store in a rural area, you know, you know, you know, the Colorado Mills is, is, a, is a sad situation, but those folks will probably find jobs as that job fair noted. You know, you close one of the stores in, you know, a place like Alamosa, or, um, that's, that's a lot harder and that can be a real hit for a rural community. So it's, it's also a question of, you know, the, the geographic, uh, the, you know, the rural urban, uh, uh, contrasting in a place like Colorado. Yeah, glad you make that distinction. Stefan Weiler, economics professor at Colorado State University. He also leads the Regional Economic Development Institute. And earlier we heard from reporter and producer Sam Brash of CPR News. A longtime dream of two Denver book lovers is taking shape at an old ranch near Fair Play. It's the Rocky Mountain Land Library, where Jeff Lee and Ann Martin plan to house some of the 35,000 books they've collected about nature and the West. They've begun holding classes and workshops on the property, and now, thanks to a successful Kickstarter campaign... They have enough money to start renovating one of the ranch buildings. It's the first step in an ambitious plan to create what Lee and Martin like to call a literary home on the range. And Jeff and Ann, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Thanks, Ryan. So before I get to that Kickstarter campaign, remind our listeners how you came up with the idea for a land library. Well, um, it was back in the, the mid-90s, and um, the tatter cover where we worked, and we, actually we still work, sent me to the London Book Fair to find unique titles for the store. And before heading off, Anne had read about a residential library in Wales. Where and you could spend the night. Yes. <laughs> and we, we had never thought of something like that. So we, we knew we needed to check that out. So we spent a long weekend at St. Daniel's Residential Library. And we were just inspired by the space, the building, the, the beautiful um, Harry Potter, Hogwarts kind of a library. Huh. Um, and also the access that it gave us to go explore the Welsh countryside. So we came back to Denver with that start of a dream of something similar for Colorado. And what were your impressions of that library? What sticks with you? Well, the library, it it was a lot of fun to stay at. And one thing Jeff didn't mention but was a lot of fun was it was very communal and you met people from all over who were there spending a night like us or being there for a whole semester working on projects. We met a nun from D.C. who was over there 
um, doing research on Darwin, of all things. It was it was fascinating. Meeting and, other bibliophiles, if you will. Exactly, uh-huh. and and having that conversation. You were kind of you were grouped together. Um, and then the library itself was was wonderful. It was it was based on um, Gladstone's, the old prime minister's library. That's how it started. Oh, so. very cool. And so the Rocky Mountain Land Library was was born. At least the idea for it. Uh, and indeed, you have this old ranch near Fairplay where you are making this happen. And you've already begun holding events on the property, workshops, classes, book readings. Uh, but you needed to raise money to start renovating the buildings, and there are many on the property. In February, you launched a Kickstarter campaign, which raised more than $140,000. Your initial goal was one twenty-five, <laughs> so fair to call it successful. Uh, but I understand you really had to be convinced to go the Kickstarter route. Is that true? Yes, we we, we did okay. need that, Ryan. Um, and, you know, one part of Kickstarter is it's all or nothing. If you don't reach the goal you don't get anything. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, that that really adds an element of excitement to the campaign. So, um, you know, we th- there are other crowdfunding um, platforms that you can work with that they don't have that aspect. Um, so you must have been looking when you finally decided to start the Kickstarter campaign. I'm, I'm picturing you and refreshing madly. <laughs> oh, on the I wasn't. Page. I wasn't the only one. Uh, uh-huh. It was a lot of refreshing going on <laughs> all over. <laughs> yes. So, what will these funds be used for? And, and maybe in talking about this, you can paint a little bit of a, a picture of the property. Well, the property is. Um, it's in South Park beautiful location. It's located on um, Highway 9 between Fairplay and Hartzell, about halfway through. It's um, right on the plat, and it's an old ranch, started in 1862 um, by a French couple um, with a large family. And so it's, 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 we think it's about the second oldest ranch in South Park. So oh. it has a fascinating history. Um, and it does have a lot of buildings that have been built over the years. And the Kickstarter, we sort of looked at one of the buildings that we call the Cook's House. It's, we think it's where the cook for the whole ranch, it was a big ranch at one point, um, lived and fed the ranch hands. And we thought this building would be a, a good one to start with that we could get utilities, power back to the ranch. Huh. Um, we could have a library. We could have residents. It'd be a good one to start on. Um, so that was our our idea of starting the Kickstarter is, is fixing up this this building. And will there be books in the cookhouse, do you think? Yes. Oh, there will yes. be. All right. And then I understand there's a barn that might be populated with books in fairly short order. There's a very large concrete barn that... Um, it was the horse barn at one point, and it, it is. It's made out of concrete. It could hold a lot of books, no problem. And so we probably will have a big library there, but we want to have a lot um, little libraries throughout the whole ranch in the different buildings, and there's a lot of buildings. How many books do you think you can fit in the cook's house? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I if I had to guess, I'd say 1,500. 1,500? Yeah. And I can imagine those being maybe books that connect the land to food. I mean, are you going for themes here? Well, we are. As Ann mentioned, we we really came upon the idea of instead of having one large library, yeah. 
we'd have smaller libraries throughout the ranch. Um, for instance, there's going to be a ranching history library, um, and food is a big um, theme for the land library for a long time and for the collection. So that's a good idea, Brian. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, we're talking with Jeff Lee and Ann Martin about the Rocky Mountain Land Library, which is taking shape at an old ranch near Fairplay, Colorado. I'll say it's in, you lease this from the city of Aurora. Who knew that the city of Aurora had this property up in the mountains? Is there one book in particular that you just knew had to be a part of the the initial library? There's so many books. Yeah. 35,000. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I have to say it would be A Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. And I, I think I can say that with confidence because every place where there's land library books, we have copies of that book. So we have m- many copies. It's just it's always been an important book for the land library. Um, it's the a, land li- it's about a county in Nebraska, isn't it? It's um, actually I think it's Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yeah. Okay. But it's that same kind of prairie landscape, hmm. and the story is Aldo Leopold. Um, took on this farm that had really run down over the years. It just had um, sort of the soil had been depleted, and he built it back up. How symbolic. You're right. And, you know, I I didn't realize until recently the parallel between what Aldo Leopold did at that Sand County um, farm and what we're trying to do at Buffalo Peaks Ranch. You're right. And what's your long-term vision? Do you want people spending the night at this place? We definitely want people spending the night. We we want it to be residential, like um, the St. Daniel's Residential Library. And we want it to be a place where people can come and stay like we did, maybe a couple of nights or maybe for a workshop. But also, if they're working on a long-term project, we want it to be a place where someone can come. If they're working on a book or something like that, and they need some place to finish. Almost land for a sabbatical. Exactly. And so we want it to be an, a really um, affordable place. We want it to be open. We don't want it to be a dude ranch or anything like that. We want it to be a place where it, all kinds of people can come. And School will it, groups, everything. Will it be a lending library? Can I take a book off property, do you think? I think eventually, yes, especially for those folks living, you know, nearby and fair play, et cetera. Mm. Um, so that there's some accessibility to locals. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really critical. Is there anything like this in the United States already? Not that we know of. There are, um, you know, there are places where you can go and do workshops. We've looked at a lot of them. There's not really a residential library. I think the mm. only... I think we think the only other residential library is is St. Daniel's in Wales. Jeff, it sounds like millions more dollars may be needed to complete this project. Yeah, I would say so, definitely. Okay. Where, does, you, where does that come from? Well, um, you know, I bet we'll have another Kickstarter campaign okay. down the road. <laughs> but um, we're, we're definitely approaching foundations and, um, you know, individual philanthropists. And, and, Brian, one of the great things about the Kickstarter campaign for for us wasn't just the funds, and obviously that was really important, but um, so many more people have come to the project. 
I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And Martin and Jeff Lee are the founders of the Rocky Mountain Land Library. They've raised more than $140,000 in a Kickstarter campaign to renovate one of the buildings at the ranch, which will serve as the library's permanent home. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In prison, there are limits on internet access and digital devices, so it's hard to share video of a baby's first steps or of a loved one blowing a kiss. Well, a Colorado Springs artist has come up with a novel solution using a technology invented in the 1800s. Reporter Noel Black has more. Like many proud parents, Nicole Garens captured her son Xander's first steps on her cell phone. She wanted to share the video with her husband, Roy, But Roy recently went to prison in Texas. The last time you saw him, he was between five and six months. And, you know, he was crawling and kind of standing up, holding on to things. But, you know, when a baby starts to walk, it's one of their biggest milestones. And it breaks my heart to know what he's missing. Nicole moved to Florida after Roy was incarcerated so she could be near her family. But she wanted to figure out a way for her husband to see the video. You know, pictures can only say so much. They're still pictures. While almost anyone with a smartphone can send or receive short videos these days, Prisoners still have little access to technology, so Nicole went looking online for a creative solution. She found Flipbooked.com, a small company that turns short videos into flipbooks. The company's founder is Colorado Springs artist Liza Tudor. For her, this 19th century technology was the perfect solution to a 21st century problem. Tudor's ex-boyfriend had gone to prison, and she wanted to send him a video. We had a dog that we'd gotten together, and she was getting really old. Her name was Nala, and she was, like, almost 13, and I was worried she was going to die soon, which she did. So I took a video of her giving me some kisses. Before long, Liza had written her own software to turn short videos into flipbooks. I've programmed to break it into frames and essentially lay it out in a contact sheet. Think of a sheet of stamps. This stuff is really great. She prints the images out, tears the paper along the perforations, stacks them by number, and... There we go. So here's the whole book. When Tudor sends flipbooks to prisoners, she just sends the printout in an envelope. The prisoners assemble the books themselves. I have a prepaid call from... Nick. An inmate at the Colorado Correctional Facility. Tudor's ex-boyfriend, Nick Wells, has been at the Lyman Correctional Facility in eastern Colorado since 2011. He remembers when he got that first flipbook three years ago. You know, the next thing you know, I'm in my cell, I get, I get mail, and I saw my dog running around acting crazy, and it just, it made me laugh. It brought the biggest smile to my face. Tudor also sent him a flipbook of his young nephew. Being able to see him walk for the first time was just uh, heartbreaking at the same time, like, uh, overwhelming sense of joy. And so uh, I, I, get to, I get to be a part of that. When you look back at your life, those are moments, these little tiny things, you know. And those tiny moments aren't just about toddlers. Lori Kuhn lives in Los Angeles. She turned to Flipbooked with a video of her godson tying his tie for the first time. There are many milestones, and learning to tie your first tie is something typically that your father teaches you. Her godson's dad, Wayne Boatwright, is currently serving a seven-year sentence in San Quentin. He was blown away. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. I can't even put in words. I'm glad I was there to capture it and share it with Wayne. Even if it becomes easier to send personal videos directly to prisoners, 
Flipbooked users say there's something magic about being able to hold a little bit of time in your hands. For CPR News, I'm Noel Black. Colorado Matters is also a podcast, and you can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org. Then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. That's the program for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.